Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. We are the daughters of those women who came before us. It is our absolute honour to have met so many incredible women fighting for the liberation of us all. Our role at Philia is to amplify the voices of those women via the Philia Conference and these podcasts. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. So hi, it's Sunny Jackson here, volunteer with Philia, and I'm really pleased to be joined uh, this morning um, by Esau Jane Goldsmith, the author of The Space Between Black and White, a mixed race memoir, and also a awesome feminist that has been working her entire life to make the world a better place. Hi Esau, it's lovely to chat to you. Hi, you too Sally, fantastic <laughs> to be here. So, I mean, the reason that we've sort of first got together to chat is I, I was delighted to be able to attend the online launch of, of your, your recent book, The Space Between Black and White. Um, perhaps we can start by just asking, can you tell us a little bit about what that book is about? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's my first book and it's um, a memoir on uh, mixed race identity. And I called it the space between black and white because it's literally the space I've inherited in, in, inhabited all my life. But um, at the same time, I think it's a space in which lots of people can find themselves, you know, uh, that ambiguous space where you don't feel you quite fit and you don't feel you quite belong. Um, you're wondering how it's going to play out. But I think for most people, that's something that happens maybe occasionally. And for me, it's, it's the whole story of my life. And I suppose I could describe it as saying I was an only one. And I grew up in 1950s Britain as the mixed race daughter of a single white mum who is disabled. And I spent the first six week, weeks of my life in an unmarried mother's home. And then um, eventually I was taken back to my grandparents' home on a working class estate in Battersea. And you can just imagine it caused a complete stir to have this brown kid, the only brown kid on the block in the community. And in those days, I think uh, this is the 1950s I'm talking about. So early 50s. So uh, people didn't move around so much. They didn't shop in different places. They didn't travel. They didn't travel for work. And they did everything in the community. So even though there was quite a lot of black people coming to Brixton, which is, you know, only a few miles down the road. I hardly saw any black people in, uh, wh while I was growing up. So I really felt like I was an alien dropped out of space, really. I just like stood out like a sore thumb. I got racist taunts in the street and in the playground, you know, and I just couldn't fathom out what, who I was and, you know, where I belonged. And I think that was compounded because I never saw a photograph of my African father. He left um, England about, oh, I don't know, a few weeks after I was born, never saw me. And there were just no books or stories that reflected my experience or the way I looked. And um, you can imagine this had a profound um, uh, sort of effect on my sense of self. So um, I moved to different parts of the country, different parts of the world, rural Norfolk I was in when I was 15. <laughs> People had just never seen anything like me when I was in, in the countryside. And I went to, all, all, travelled all over the world for my job, Scandinavia, Italy, Africa, India, 
and I experienced this onlyness wherever I went. And um, as a child, I had that a chance meeting uh, with um, shall I? I won't say any more about it. I had a chance meeting on Clapham Common, which stayed with it me all my life. And I was wondering if I could read a, a little piece from the book, Sally, just to describe that moment, because I think it might bring it home to people. I, I think that would be lovely. And, and it'll, um, I think also it will give people a, a sense of the, the style in which the book is written, which would be lovely. So thank you. Yes, that would be great. Yeah, great. I'll talk about the style a bit later, um, but it's, it's all written in the present tense. So, you, you know, in my child voice and my adult voice, so you can really kind of be with me in the moment. So, OK, I'm on Clapham Common and it's uh, mid-November 1957 and um, I'm uh, just finished playing on the swings. And uh, it, of course, it was getting dark and we were walking back across the common back home. And um, this is the chance meeting that I had um, in the twilight. I was four years old. In the foggy half-light, I can just about make up out a family group, moving slowly across the grass ahead of us. As we get nearer, I can see they're wearing the strangest clothes, long robes and trousers, glimpses of red, gold and blue, with short jackets, scarves and hats to keep out the late autumn chill. The woman is wearing a green and gold scarf around her head, like a turban. They stand out in the fast-fading light, like a flock of brightly coloured birds. The smallest bird breaks away from the group and runs towards me. A little girl, about four years old, the same age as me. She has dark skin and black fuzzy hair, like mine. We stop and stare at each other, spellbound, rooted to the spot. A sudden shock of recognition, of connection. I know you. Kumba, Kumba. I think it was Kumba they called her. Something like that. Kumba ran off to join her family and they moved off across the common and out of sight. It all happened so quickly. I can't quite believe what I've just seen. I try to run after her, but Auntie Belinda holds me back. We have to go home now, she coaxes. Your mum will be back from work soon. It's getting dark and Nan will have tea ready. Tea time. It always interrupts something really important, just at the wrong moment. I have stumbled on a secret. I'm not the only one. I'm not alone in the world. There are other others. And more than that, coloured people sometimes come in whole families. Mum, dad and two children, not just one-offs like me. I feel strange, excited, scared, shocked, all at the same time, but also comforted. Wow, that must have been such a range of emotions for you when you first saw Kumba. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an image that stayed with me all my life. And sometimes I told people my name was Kumba if they asked me <laughs> my name and say, where are you from and what's your name? <laughs> because I just felt she, she, there was a part of my identity missing and she represented it, definitely. Absolutely. And, and that kind of brings us on, I think, perhaps to, to my next question. Um, in that, clearly that experience of growing up within a white family and um, not just within a white family but within a white family where there weren't other black or brown people around you know in any sense in family and community and etc and as you say until the first time that you encountered that was when you met Kumba and the theme of mixed race because we we've seen by no means enough but we're seeing more books now um around race and around black experience and from people of color but the theme of mixed race is something quite new why did you feel now was the time for a book that looked at those issues for somebody growing up as mixed race well i think partly you know for our mixed race community it's now the fastest growing ethnic minority community in the UK probably I don't know two three million of us according to the official figures um, but I think there's more because um, not everybody who is mixed race identifies as mixed race so there's lots of us out there and I think there's a a lot of public discussion about it. Uh, before COVID, I think you may remember, Sally, that, you know, mixed race was a, a, a hot topic with all the Megan gate and all Absolutely. of that stuff, you know, back in the day. Um, but I often think it was a very sort of superficial type of discussion. You know, uh, is mixed race the acceptable face of black? And are we really black? And, you know, um, or are we just good looking? And then you put us on an advert and say you've got it covered or whatever it is. Um, and I think sometimes it was quite hostile, like you're not really authentic, you're not real, you know, and I wanted to shed new light and depth on on the issue of mixed race and chart it through like it's not a new thing. I, I, my experience is over several uh, decades and generations and um, I wanted to do this sort of experientially, not as a th theoretical book. There's lots of theoretical books on race at the moment, but I wanted this to be almost written like a novel, like a story, you know, there's love, sex, you know, drugs, experience in it, everything. It's not a kid's book, by the way. <laughs> it, it covers some really, in, in spite of the, that little passage I've just read you, it covers some really quite deep issues, as you know. Um, and I wanted to get across the idea that being mixed race doesn't depoliticize race. That's the charge we get. You know, it's a luxury. It's not relevant. You know, we've got to stick to the real struggle. But I think it's about mixed race is about challenge, inclusion, social and political justice, equality, diversity, and kind of finding those commonalities between us as well as delighting in difference. And there's no more relevant narrative you know than that the uh, today really because of what's happening in america and you know yesterday i was in tooting joining the uh, black lives matter um protest you know um so i feel very much that um i've always been part of that struggle i always will be but i always felt like i was an only one and now i feel part of a community and i'll never forget the first time i walked into a room full of mixed race people most of them younger than me because there's still very few of them 
adverse uh, mixed race people of my age. So a lot of them younger than me, but I walked into that room, there was 30 or 40 mixed race people in there at a meeting. I cried, <laughs> I did. I just felt part of a community for the first time in my life that I wasn't alone mm -hmm. in my struggle. So it's, it's, I felt it's really important that this book is a contribution to chronicling mm -hmm. our history and the history of the movement for social justice over generations. And I think that's one of the things that makes it uh, really interesting to read because obviously as a, bit, uh, a retrospective, it looks at the issues of being mixed race for you as a child, then for you as a teenager, for you as a young adult, and as you say, going through um, various aspects of your life, but also um, in various environments as well because of the, the, the different places that you, you've travelled to um, across your life. So it really does give... Um, a very wide perspective, um, even though it's a single story, um, mm. it touches on so many different things. That I think there's so much food for thought going going through it. Uh, yeah. As a, a white person, there, were, there was, uh, for me, an awful lot of learning in the book, which I really appreciated. Great. Great. Fantastic. Um, and I think um, you're right that it sort of covers so many different um, uh, sort of generations and um, understanding of um, the, the theme of race and mixed race and people are still very reluctant to talk about it but I think uh, in a way some of the same issues are facing children of uh, mixed race children today um, as I, I faced still not enough books not enough images not enough understanding of the mixed race experience so um, I think of mixed race parents of today I hope that they will increase their sense of kind of racial literacy around all these things and do that learning um, through reading and talking to other parents I think uh, parents of mixed race children need to realize that very often unless they're mixed race themselves they won't have an understanding of what it's like to be mixed race you might have one black parent or one parent of color and one white parent or there might be different mixes, you know, Asian and, and uh, black, for example. But the fact is that you don't know how your child is feeling and you may well find that that child is struggling with things you can't see as a monoracial mono person, whether black or white. So you need to be listening to the children and hearing what it is that they're dealing with. Um, and make sure that they, they have lots of um, multiracial and lots of multi-ethnic friendship groups. And I know it's all very well for me to say that living in Tooting, you know, but in other parts of the country that might not be possible. But at least you can introduce your children to um, different images in books. There are books being published now um, by writers of colour or featuring black or mixed race characters. But you know, Sally, only 8% of books published in the UK today are by writers of colour or feature any black stories or characters or anything. So really, compared with this generation of children who are the most diverse generation of children that there's ever been we still are not serving either that that community our community or the millions of white children who need to understand their generation mm -hmm. because it's their generation as well it's a multiracial multicultural generation so these books are for everybody but I'd also say that, you know, we need to be challenging racist bullying and not just 
be told to ignore it like I was. You know, I'd come home and cry to my mum and say, people called me a woggy and a darkie and a nigger and, you know, told me I've been rolling in dog shit, you know, and she'd say, oh, just ignore them. You know, well, that is really damaging for a kid. Uh, everyone told me it's not just my mum, you know, the teachers and everybody. So I think we need to challenge that. But one thing I would say to white parents bringing up um, mixed race kids is remember that white is also a color and that how you show up as a white parent is really important and know that this gives you privileges that your child doesn't have and that you are not going to be noticing things that your child is noticing. So um, I think, you know, there's loads of things that we can do to bring our community together, but also to raise awareness, you know, including I hope people will read the book. <laughs> now you've given it such a good press, Sally. <laughs> well, I've um, been recommending it all over the place. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm really pleased. But actually, uh, can I read you another little bit? which um, obviously you'll remember it's a bit um, right towards the end of the book and it's um, where I went to a meeting just after uh, Obama's um, election so this would have been 2008 2009 um, and there was this big meeting up in the Barbican somewhere you know run by some big sort of lawyers association you know and it was called something like uh, will we ever have a British Obama you know could we have a, a black person in uh, as prime minister here and the thing is there was a panel of speakers there right there's about 200 people in the room me and all in the audience with these 200 people and there's a panel of um uh, black and asian speakers so they're all speaking and uh, actually one of the speakers was mixed race actually friend of mine but anyway um, the whole discourse, you know, we got to the end of it and everybody was discussing it and on the panel. And then I suddenly had this urge to come out as mixed race because I feel like I've always been, you know, very much like I was born in the era of the, well, it's certainly in my young adulthood as an activist in the era of black consciousness, you know, and we all, we're all black, you know, even Asian people identified as black because black was a political statement right so i thought actually now we've had a guy in elected to the white house who's my color who's mixed race who's the only person i know who went all the way to africa to find his heritage you know and now he's been elected president of the u.s i thought if i can't come out as mixed race now <laughs> when can i so i get up and i make this impassioned speech about how he's given us all you know us mixed race people a, a validity that we never had before blah blah Anyway, of course, I was attacked on all sides for this in the meeting. Oh, shut up, you know, about your mixed race. You know, they called Obama a black man while he was running for president. And then when, as soon as he get elected, they called him a mixed race person because they don't want a black person in the White House, you know. So all of this. And um, I felt really like I had been silenced. And this often happens to mixed race people, even today, you know, never mind about bringing up your mixed race kid. You know, sort of, this was kind of you know, 10 years ago, which is relatively recent for me. So anyway, I'm going to read you this little bit about what happened after the meeting. And I'd made this stand. Okay. Sally, a tall white woman, one of the organizers of the meeting, could not understand my disappointment that the space for exploration of mixed race identity had been closed down. My intervention evidently caused tensions all round. Tensions? Well, you created them yourself just now, didn't you? She countered crossly on her way out of the meeting room. I didn't mean to. 
I'd gone and mixed it up all again for the black and white people when they wanted to celebrate. I'd let them all down. I felt guilty, stupid, ashamed, a traitor, stranded in the space between. This was personal as well as political. I'd been an activist in this equality and diversity movement all my life. The only other mixed race person I'd come across who embraced his mixedness and had crossed the miles to find his father in Africa like me had now become president of the United States. If I couldn't find the space to talk about my mixedness now, then when? Where was the space for what I had experienced? To have a voice and know that it is valid, strong, collective, part of the movement for change. What must that be like? At the reception, things started looking up. Seb, one of the speakers, confided that having been adopted by an all-white family, he found it very difficult to speak out about his mixed background in the black movement here. A couple of white women from the audience joined us to say they were grateful for what I'd said. They both had mixed race children and found it hard to create space for their kids to explore their dual identities and to hear from older role models about what the mixed race experience might mean for them. A really poignant moment because as you say, if, if at that moment you couldn't celebrate your mixed raceness, if that's a word, yeah. um, when could you? But at the same, I really felt that that feeling of kind of confusion in some ways of, you know, where, where am I supposed to fit into all of this? Yeah. And that was like with a lifetime in the struggle, you know, yeah. so it just felt blimey, you know, haven't I earned my stripes yet? <laughs> sort of thing. What more do I have to do? So <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I think it's, um, it might give um, people who are in, uh, blended families or families with lots of different heritages an idea that they are not having a, a similar experience and that you know they it, it's a it's a very exciting place but they're gonna grow alongside each other um, and with each other hopefully in that and as you say it's about you know finding that place that that recognizes the difference um, but also celebrates that difference yeah yeah, yeah absolutely so, I mean, moving on to the book itself, you, you mentioned right at the beginning that this is, this is the first book that you've written. Could you tell us a little bit about how you kind of, how you went about that? What, what process you used? Um, and as an autobiography, um, what always seems to me must be, you know, the bit of a nightmare in the A, what do I include? What do I not include? And also just thinking about not just what you remember, but what memories trigger. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, I'm sitting in my little shed, which is like a purpose built office at the bottom of my garden where I actually wrote the book. And if I thought, um, maybe two or three years ago that I'd be sitting here talking to you with a real book in my hand, I'd have thought, oh my God, amazing. <laughs> it finally happened. <laughs> because I think when you're going through it, you just never think that you're ever going to resolve the issues that you, you're, uh, you mentioned there. Um, I mean, one of the issues, the difficulties, I think, being a first-time writer is what they call finding your voice. And I was writing things down and they just didn't sound like me 
I thought, how come, you know, I, I sound like this. How come it is that when I write it down, it sounds completely different and a bit flat and, you know, um, not the vibrant writing that I wanted. And someone said, well, like, I think it was probably one of my kids saying, uh, well, I don't know why you can't find your voice. You never stop talking at home. <laughs> so I thought, actually, yeah, I have got a voice. So I turned on the sort of um, auto typing and I spoke the book into the like I'm speaking to you so that's why people when they read the book they say I can just hear your voice I think too right because it is <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it is so I you know you, you suddenly somebody said to me have you tried this dragon dictate thing and there you go off I went but I think it's still pretty tough because um Lots of people like me think, oh, I've got lots of interesting stories. I could write a book, you know, and you write down your interesting stories and realize you've got too many of them and they don't hang together. So you've got to find some kind of a golden thread and stick to it. And as you say, that golden thread was mixed race. That's what I wanted to write about. So I got a mentor who went through it line by line and she said, okay, I'm going to take you at your word. Anything that isn't about mixed race is not going to be part of this. So I had to take out a lot of stories that like hold chapters sometimes. Really, <laughs> oh, Sally, I'll tell you, I was so bereft. I got all this stuff in there like a, a file. Um, and my mentor said to me, well, don't throw it away or delete it because you know why a lot of first-time authors always do a book of short stories straight afterwards because they got all this beautiful material <laughs> that didn't go in the first draft so um so yeah I I mean you know I learned a lot just about how you write but I also wanted to push the boat out around it sort of make it a, a story, you know, with, with everything in it. Mm. And so I had, I had to kind of make it a memoir rather than an autobiography because I didn't know the difference before. I don't know if you know the difference. I but. have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, let me enlighten you because this is what I learned that an autobiography has to be totally researched like a biography and you have to go through dates, blah, blah, blah. And who said what and when and all this. Whereas with a memoir, some of the, uh, my mentor said to me, you've got too many aunties, too many boyfriends, too many, you know, uh, too many therapists. So I sort of had to meld them into two or three examples. So some of them are composite characters, you know, so, and I changed all their names so that I didn't have to say, um, they, if they said, I don't, I didn't actually say that I can say, oh, well, yeah, but it's a character based on you. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's all kind of true because I wrote loads of journals ever since I was a child. So I had so much contemporary source material and some of it, like, you know, my 1986 diary is actually in the book, literally as a, as a chapter, mm. uh, literally raw, almost unedited. Um, so I didn't have to, I didn't have to scrape too far to find the, the memories, but I also covered myself by uh, doing interviews with about 50 of my friends, family, and, uh, you know, from my Ghanaian family as well to get their memories, uh, just to sort of get a landscape. And that, as you say, would trigger all sorts of things. Honestly, Sally, I was lying there in bed dreaming about people I'd literally forgotten forgotten existed you know it's memories like a muscle you kind of turn it on and wow like the it's like water it just pours out of you so it was very exciting plus 
I have to say I'm a hoarder. Yeah, I've got files and files of stuff. I've got all, I, I did original letters from the 1970s. I reproduced them, you know, slightly edited. I've got diaries, anecdotes, letters. I keep a dream diary. So a lot of my dreams are in there. So I think it's got, definitely got texture, this mm. book. It sort of <laughs> borrows from everywhere to tell the story. So it took me a long time to write. And, uh, you know, some of the characters in it didn't want to be in it. Uh, some <laughs> of the characters that got left out of it really wanted to be in it. And, uh, you know, other times I thought I'd want to avoid being sued here. So I had to change the names and everything. So it's, it's a, like a minefield doing a, a memoir. But um, so far, so good, Sally. I haven't had anybody uh, writing to me to tell me that they deny it all. <laughs> I tell you, it's, it's a real advert as well for, you know, keeping a journal and being a hoarder because, you know, they are really rich um, parts of the book where you say this is a letter form or as you say, you know, this is from my, my journal. Um, it, it really adds to it. And it, I must just say very guiltily that the number of times I've started keeping a journal and then fallen by the wayside, um, it just shows, you know, it, it makes me think, you know, what if I had, what would I be reading about my thoughts and feelings, you know, 20, 30 years ago, whatever. It's quite an eye opener, you know, Sally, because some of the time I've, I've got material that I wrote when I was eight, you know, um, and 14. And I'm thinking it's recognizably me. Absolutely. You know, I got the same sort of sense of burning justice then <laughs> that I've got now. So you can surprise yourself, really. It's an amazing experience. Absolutely. And it's, um, the, as you say, there's, there's various stages through your life where recording what was happening to you, there, there was, you know, so many influences happening um, in your life. Um, and one of the, the chapters that, that really resonated with me and as a, as a feminist for me really showed um, the aspects of the personal being political um, was talking about when you were in hospital um, and in a small ward um, just with, with some other women and some of the, the discussions that you had with those women and the feeling of sisterhood that comes out of that, that chapter is really palpable. Oh, thank you, Sally. I think, um, um, as you say, some of it was very emotional to write and I found I was writing some of it in tears. and you kind of have to let your story go out into the world and sort of it's me but it's it's uh it's an entity in its own right the book um but while i was actually in the process of giving birth to it it was at times incredibly painful and uh i think what i wanted to show in that chapter was how as you say sisterhood is powerful um but it doesn't only happen in feminist consciousness raising groups or when you're planning a campaign or whatever. Women actually come together all over the place where when things are really tough and you find that kind of sisterhood um, in those situations and we, we can help each other to heal. Um, and you're right, some of those conversations that I had, it's funny, you know, I wrote it down first and then I realized that the characters that I had they suddenly came back to me you know I just thought oh my gosh there they all are and you know um uh, very very distinct and I realized when I wrote the stories down there's one woman who is Greek she'd been raped 
um, and had a miscarriage. She'd been, um, she's a student activist like me, so she'd ended up uh, at a riot in uh, at Greek um, uh, on the campus in her university, been arrested and then ended up um, fleeing for her life and coming to the UK and ending up in the same hospital ward as me, you know, with a, a pregnancy, which was um, uh, due to her being raped by soldiers uh, in that experience. Um, so uh, the whole conversations we had sort of went across race, class, gender, you know, there were was a very posh woman next to me with, you know, who had loads of horses and <laughs> another woman who was very working class who had four kids, you know, from Leicester where I was a, a student at the time. Someone else having a hysterectomy, someone having a sterilization, someone had an a, a ectopic pregnancy. And we were all women in all those different walks of life, some students, some housewives, whatever. And we were all telling our stories. It's a bit like, you know, the feminist Canterbury Tales. <laughs> and my story was that um, I had had my second abortion and I had uh, ended up in hospital because um, that abortion uh, led to a, a fallopian tube infection, which was, you know, very serious and endangered my fertility. And uh, I was treated with absolute contempt by the, the staff, particularly the consultant, very male patriarchal and you people, this is what you get yourselves into and, and all of this. And um, so this is your punishment to be having premarital sex and all that. So it's very traditional. But luckily, we told our stories to each other, us women, and we supported each other. And um, I realized by talking to the other women that actually part of my problem was that I was acting out what my mother had happened to my mother. That at 19, she'd had this um, brown baby and ended up, you know, in an unmarried mother's home. And somehow I was kind of reenacting it and not then being able to go through with it. So um, I just want to read you a bit towards the end of the chapter where um, uh, I'm sort of suddenly realising what, what is happening to me. Thank you. At only 20 years old, a disabled single mother with a brown child, my mum had been ready to go it alone. In the end, my granddad visited the, old, the unmarried mother's home, looked into the cot where I was sleeping, and said, let's have her home, in spite of my grandmother's reluctance. And now I understand that mum may well have been sad to leave the unmarried mother's home. When you're surrounded by loving, understanding women with a shared experience, who accept you and support you and hear your story without judgment or censure, you can help each other to heal. On day five, they tell me I'm to be discharged. I knew this day would come, but now it's arrived. I don't want to leave. I don't want to be discharged from these wonderful women on the ward. I feel safe in here. We're all in the same boat. I don't trust people on the outside. I don't know what box they're going to put me in next, how I will be seen from moment to moment, negated, stripped of validity and authenticity. I hug them all in turn, Ariadne, Samantha, Martha, promising to keep in touch with them. Samantha is going home too. She's waiting for Quentin to collect her. Good luck, keep fighting. It won't be the same without you. 
I say goodbye to Wiggy last. She's a philosopher, a wise woman. We all look to her. Listen, yo, she says earnestly, gripping my hand tightly, drawing me close to her. Every time I didn't know what to do with me life, I had another baby. Take me mind off it, you know. But you, you got choices I never had. You got the chance of an education and a career. Go on, you go out and grab it with both hands. And don't sabotage yourself, girl, because that's what you're doing. No excuses. Promise me. I, I must admit, I fell a little bit in love with Wiggy reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we Everyone all do. Everyone needs a Wiggy in their life. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> She was great. <laughs> she was lovely. And you, you touched earlier as well on the attitude of the doctors. And it is, in some ways, I wasn't surprised in that, you know, those attitudes exist. But I suppose I was um, taken aback to be reminded of the blatancy of them displaying the attitudes to you um, clearly in hospital, quite poorly, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a vulnerable situation. And, and ruthless uh, uh, in the way that they spoke to you and, and treated you. And I, I kind of recognise that these were, you know, only a few years after abortion was made legal. But although mm. legal, that certainly you weren't in a place where um, it was, you were supported around that decision. Yeah, I mean, that it was, there was a lot of resistance to it among the medical profession in some quarters, you know. So um, I did find that... Um, uh, those kind of patriarchal values, which to some extent are still pervading our health service yeah. and particularly racist values, you yeah. know, um, and there is still um, some of that going around institutionally, which um, comes to the fore in places in, you know, in times of COVID and, uh, and so on. So, uh, yeah, I think I wanted to chronicle that, but also to see that in spite of that, women actually can be solid together, you know, and not necessarily people who would call themselves feminists, but um, there was a spirit in there of, um, of kind of shared experience, which got us through it. And uh, um, for me as well, it kind of emphasised that um, the resilience and strength of women, and certainly when women come together, it's it's a power to be reckoned with. So mm-hmm. no matter how hard they tried to put you down, the women around you, not just for yourself, but with each other, you know, kept all of them um, uh, emotionally well and started that emotional healing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So moving on sort of through the book, um, as you get older, you talk about as you started your work, um, working in in women's rights um, and also in development. How do you think that those experiences have shaped your work? Um, Well, I think um, I always felt myself to be a citizen of the world, you know, like... (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's all been very, uh, I think Theresa May was very disparaging of that, you know, citizens of everywhere or citizens of nowhere, or whatever it is. I mean, that was obviously a put down to people who are internationalists politically. And um, I've always felt myself so because I did, I always felt that I didn't belong in the UK. Everybody thought of me as a stranger wherever I went. People said, where'd you come from? And if I said, you know, Battersea, they said, no, really, where'd you actually come from, you know, originally and all this. So I always felt, okay, you know, I belong in the world and not necessarily to where I am at the moment. 
and that led me to have a you know real commitment and understanding to uh, rights and um, international rights and human rights around the world and uh, I went on v I was one of the first black people I think to be sent on VSO uh, voluntary service overseas in the 70s uh, I was sent to Tanzania and people just didn't know what to make of me. The volunteers, the white volunteers didn't know what to make of me and neither did the Tanzanians, you know. So as a mixed race person, I felt, again, that huge sense of loneliness in my first time in Africa in 1977, more even than the UK or, or as, as equally. And I'd kind of thought, oh, if I go to Africa, maybe I'll feel like I'm coming home. But actually, my father is actually from Ghana. So being in Tanzania, it just brought up a whole load more issues around identity. I found it a really interesting chapter to write because it enabled me to make sense of my experiences there. Um, but I want to now read you a bit from um, a chapter called Debatable. And it's toward, sort of in the middle of the book, really, where I'm in Tanzania, I'm a volunteer, and I have a chance, another chance encounter, which again, uh, changed the whole direction of my life, I think. And uh, I'm on the way to the Shamba, which is Swahili for the school farm. And the farm is where we used to go uh, during the growing season. Every week, uh, I used to take my students there because I was a volunteer teacher. And we used to grow the school dinners on the school farm, maize and beans. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah, I'm, that's what we should be doing here, you mm. know, teaching children how to grow things. Never mind, that's another. That's another. <laughs> but anyway, I'm uh, on my way to the Shamba. I've got my hoe on my, on my shoulder. It's really heavy. All my bright young students are streaking off ahead of me because they're much fitter than I am. And I'm kind of struggling along on the forest path. And then I had this uh, encounter which really made an enormous impression on me. In a clearing, I notice a woman struggling with a huge log that she has just felled with her axe. Her tiny baby is bundled up in a wrapper on her back, securely tied with a knot at the front. Two big bags of brushwood lie on the ground at her feet. I call out a greeting and ask if she needs help. She nods. Ndio, asante mama. Yes, thank you. The two of us grapple with the giant log, struggling to hoist it onto her head. It must be nearly 10 inches in diameter and as tall as me. She has a length of cloth twisted into a circle around her head to prevent the load from slipping. Her knees buckle slightly and her face screws up with the effort and pain under the weight of it. She steadies herself, then sets off down the path at a trot, tree on her head, axe at her waist, baby on her back, two bags of brushwood in either hand, the muscles of her calves straining as her tiny frame almost disappears under her impossible load. A Tanzanian man calls out, Jambo, Mama, pleasantly in greeting as he cycles slowly past her. I sit on a tree stump, head in my hands, not quite believing what I have just seen. One of my students, Juma, always late, comes up to console me. Pole sana, very sorry, Mwalimu. Are you tired? Yes, I am tired of seeing injustice and inequality and unfairness, sheer grinding poverty, women treated like pack horses and second-class citizens and being powerless to change it 
and even finding myself unwittingly aiding and abetting it by trying to help. Nobody talks about this, here or at home. It's just seen as women's unpaid role to fetch the firewood and the water and have the babies. It's not even counted as work. Women are strong, they say. They're used to it. But these women are lifting the kind of loads no human being or even animal smaller than an elephant should be required to lift. Putting such strain on the spine, the limbs, the skull, and so recently after having given birth. When I get home, I'm going to launch an international campaign going about this. We have to do something. It's a scandal. As she disappears along the path, I realise I've forgotten to ask her name. It's such a powerful segment, that Eswa. I, I think it's one of those segments, you, you know, there's a whole series of lectures that could come out of that on, you know, women's place in the world, um, the impact of struggle on women, the loads that we carry, Mm. Um, how some women have many more loads to carry than perhaps we first, you know, we see at first sight. It's just so much in, in that short segment that sums up the, the varying struggles that we often just take for granted that that's, as you say, just women's work. Yeah, I think um, the thing is, you know, it's kind of archetypal and it's sort of like aid porn, really, isn't it? You see women with a baby on their back and a pot of, in their hand, and it's almost like, um, seen as a glamorous image to get people giving money and you know I didn't want to give money I wanted to put a stop to it just kind of like we it's not about making their lives better by helping them put the log on their head it's actually about stopping that from happening you know I, as I felt totally enraged and still do now and I think I've spent the whole of my career working in uh, the aid and development sector and also in the feminist movement. And um, I know that I worked in a sector which was riddled with patriarchal, colonial, racist, mm -hmm. sexist assumptions. But I found a lot of, certainly in the 80s and 90s, really good radical people working in the sector who I could really join hands with and solidarity with across the world. So I think it taught me a lot, um, but I really feel I've come to the point now where I think it was always flawed and now it's in total crisis. And it's been hit, the, the sector, like many other sort of voluntary and non-government sectors, have been hit by the 2008 financial crash. Then we had the sex abuse scandal um, in the aid agencies, yep. if you remember, a couple of years ago. Well, I mean, it's been going on for years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I point that out in my book that there's always been that going on. Um, and then we had the global environmental crisis, which meant it was really hard to do any development so-called anyway, because um, the environment, you know, you'd get 30 years of, of uh, development projects wiped out by a uh, climate crisis. And then uh, we got COVID where the whole world has shut down. Yeah. So it seems to me we've been hit by crisis after crisis without changing the institution. It's always been, okay, let's get ourselves together and carry on doing other fundraising and see where we are at the end of it. And it just seems to me now we've got to think, you know, I'm a revolutionary and I think, you know, uh, this is a great opportunity to 
push the whole thing over the edge and reformulate it as an international solidarity and human rights and women's rights movement, which is about reparations and about equality and about a struggle for um, world justice. Uh, instead of let's go help out the brown people, you know, it's just got to stop. So I'm with the with a mind that I, I see a, I I got a dream of a future in which you got a southern led, women led, feminist led movement, which is about transformation, and about degrowth and about not thinking of development as let's get all countries as developed as the western world because the western world development model is the problem it's we've all got a junket you know and we've all got to find a way to the future and i think the answer to that is very often in the way communities survive and thrive in the poorest places And also the um, work I'm doing with feminist movements in the UK, particularly the diaspora movements, who we have as feminist diaspora movements have connections, you know, here and at home. And so we don't have that awful here, you know, over here and over there type of mentality, which is holding us back from true solidarity. So I see a movement in which those women like us you know who uh, support our villages back home support our movements back home and also live in the west can contribute our wisdom in a leadership role in the sector so i really feel that it's time for a big big change and um, although covid has been an awful situation we're going through hell and now we have the sort of black lives matter as well somehow i feel really optimistic and positive that you know the future is ours we can shape it and we've proved that communities are not dead that we're we're they're alive and thriving and we can have women-centered feminist values which will be leading the world and and leading people's thinking i i think it will come you know i've i've been in this movement all my life and i'm still an optimist that's positive to hear and and i think you know you're so right in that as as dreadful as it's been and for all the heartache that it's brought with covid there's also some some really strong lessons there to be learned about you know what we do value and what is helpful both for us as communities but also for the planet um that we you know hopefully may learn uh, and act differently in the future as a, as a result of of covid impacting our lives in the in the way it has as in in a, in a global way yeah i think there's been a lot of um understanding sharing reaching out that was always there in communities and i'm interested in the way people talk about you know we've got to have a new way of working actually sometimes it's the old way yeah. and it's a way women have often been working anyway in spite of the patriarchal system so that we have got lots of experience in that and um, it's the way that women often come together particularly around feminism to kind of keep families going and keep communities going and I think it's it's um, extraordinarily political Mm. and we need to be um, leading the world in what we already know it's not that it hasn't been tried and it's uh, they will never change and it will never change. I think the biggest enemy is it will never change them because it ha- can and is changing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, three months ago, we could go out in the world and kiss and hug each other mm-hmm. and it changed, you know, and people somehow managed to get together because of and in spite of that, you know. Yeah.
yeah and the you know the fact that people do learn and people do adapt is is yeah. powerful absolutely and you you talk about you know the ability to learn and we you know again we're at a very crucial time at the moment with the, the dreadful murder of george floyd and um breonna taylor and the impact that clearly you know each of those deaths is is an absolute tragedy but the fact that it's highlighted that just scratch the surface and the levels of, of institutional racism that occur, not just in America, but you look at the number of people or rather the balance of people that have had tickets around um, social distancing for COVID and um, BME people very much overrepresented. So we're seeing such clear evidence of, of racism and, you know, clearly yeah. we need to be doing so much better. I just wonder what your thoughts are at the moment. You mentioned you were you were at the protest yesterday in teaching yeah. and, and able to be part of, of that resistance. Well, I can see the movements that I've been part of blossoming um, in a new generation. My children were there. It's funny how we haven't got a word for grown-up children. I mean, they're 27 and 32, but anyway, they're my adults. <laughs> um, and we were there together and I was thinking, gosh, you know, this is where I started and they're kind of engaging in that whole thing. And uh, so I feel very positive about it. Um, I know that feminism is alive and well in its fourth wave and it's as vibrant as ever it was in the 70s. And it's just a delight to see some of the young women coming forward. And I think the thing is that racism and sexism were always there. And so it's not that they've suddenly reared their head. It's that now it's top of the political agenda and top of people's consciousness. But I've been aware of it and conscious of it every day of my mm. existence. And I'm working with a, a black women's philosophy group, uh, just a small group of us, uh, envisioning a future and what that future might look like. And rather than just sort of thinking, oh, we got to fight the what's going on now. Mm. Yeah, we have and we do. But at the same time, I think the right wing has, uh, has sort of uh, colonized and monopolized the future. And it looks very like the past, only worse. Um, whereas I think uh, we can construct a new future and we should bring back utopianism and say, this is the kind of world we want to live in and how we would like it to be. And really sort of say, how would it work? How would we uh, engage with each other in a way that's um, kind to the planet and all of these things? And it seems to me you've got examples all around you because people are actually doing it and they're yeah. doing it spontaneously. So nobody can tell me it doesn't work because I can see it. I can see it in my village in Tooting, shall we say. And I can see it in my village in Ghana yeah. um, that, that these things are possible. So I think let's think about the art of the possible really and not just get stuck in uh, you know this is all terrible and I think I'll come out of this I mean some people have been are going through hell make no mistake about it and we are campaigning on their behalf but in my black women's philosophy group one of the things we were saying was we aren't calling it the the lockdown we're calling it the great pause because as black women, we are all professionals and one is a museum curator and the, uh, one of them is uh, running a project on um, literacy at a university. And, you know, so we're all professional women. And we were saying that we're having a great pause from the racism and sexism we usually get in institutions when we go to work. And I think it's actually um, a respite in some ways for people who get that every day. And um, it, it's like, 
uh, there's not just one narrative and some people are experiencing this um, this period in very different ways from others and we need to tell all of those stories and that yeah there are lots of um, black women on the front line and there are also black women are, who are on the front line of uh, you know quite quite high up in their career in our careers um, who feel this uh, weight of oppression <laughs> and that you know this is this is a genuine period of reflection when we can um, free ourselves up from having to deal with it on a daily basis you know everyday mm-hmm. racism and sexism so I, that's a story that I haven't heard told everybody's got to tell the terrible story but there are other stories and uh, we we are all different and we all have equally valid stories to tell Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just I suppose to finish up the, you know, we started off by talking about your story, your book, The Space Between Black and White. What, what are your hopes for the impact of that book? What would, what would you like to come from people reading it? Well, as I say, I think um, I meant the space of, between black and white as actual, like the space I inhabit, uh, and metaphorical. So I'd first like people to understand more about the actual space that uh, that people struggle with who are mixed race like myself. Um, but it's not just um, a story which is negative. It's actually, I'm saying that mixed race people have an entry to places and spaces that other people don't have and that it's a fantastic delight and I just wouldn't have it any other way. I'm discovering more and more about his joys by talking to other mixed race people like myself. So it's, um, my book is a joyful story, but it's a story for everybody, not just one of understanding our particular situation, but understanding that the human uh, situation is full of ambiguity and that all of us are multi-faceted multi-leveled people with lots of different experiences we don't just have one story there are many and there are many inside ourselves and understand your different stories and um, engage with your own identity and obviously as you say we have an opportunity and time at the moment to come together over um, the death of George Floyd and the um, rising up of the uh, the anti-racist Black Lives Matter movement where white and people of colour can come together and challenge that scourge of racism and white supremacy that really does a disservice to all of us, all of us, apart from a very, very small minority of the population who have taught us that change isn't possible, but it's not, it's a lie. It is possible. So it's time for everyone to stand up and be counted. And I hope my book will kind of resonate with people and, uh, you know, inspire people to make that journey because I ain't giving up anytime soon. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's been an absolute delight to chat to Esra and, and your optimism is infectious, um, both in talking to you and, and reading through the book. So I'm sure you're, you're absolutely right. This actually gives us a huge opportunity at the moment. Your book's available via your website. So we'll make sure we put those details up with the podcast so that uh, people can see where they can, they can get hold of it from. And as I say, I'd heartily recommend it to everyone. But I also hope that um, this is the beginning of our conversations and we'll yeah. come back and have another chat with you soon. 
Well, it's mutual, Sally. It's been an absolute delight and fantastic to be uh, engaged with the work of Felia. And I'm really, um, uh, really honoured to be uh, um, invited to talk to you and also to be part of an ongoing conversation. So I hope it's the beginning of a very beautiful relationship. And I just wanted to say that um, during the time of COVID, the independent publishers are really struggling to survive. And I am part of a collective of all female black-led publishers. And well, not black-led, they're all black female (laughs) women who are running this publishing house. It's called Jacaranda. And I really would urge you to buy from your local booksellers and uh, choose indie publishers over the big boys, you know, and and, uh, make sure that we keep that publishing alive because we've got to get more black books out there. And my book is one of the 20 and 2020 that Jacaranda was fed up with the uh, very few books that were written by art, by writers of colour. So they did a competition, a national competition, to find 20 black writers to publish in 2020. And so I'm one of the 20. So I'm very delighted to be part of a radical collective, which is changing the face of publishing too. Lucky old me. <laughs> Absolutely. And as you say, it's so important. We need to get more out there. So, yeah, for sure, we'll put those details on the website as well and really encourage women to obviously have a look at your book, but also have a look at the, the other titles that uh, Jacaranda are, are promoting as well at the moment. Great. Thank you so much, Sally. Really Take good care of yourself then, Edward. It's been too. gorgeous speaking with you. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.